Welcome to the new episode of What's Your Theory? Today's topic is all surrounded around white privilege and how we benefit from it. Um, today, we have three metric theory people joining us. Myself, Kaylee Caronta, uh, account director out of the Denver office. And Ben Brenton, uh, senior account manager also in Denver. And Annabelle Hoagley, an account manager also in Denver. And before we start, just want to say, um, obviously, we have an uncomfortable past in this history um, dealing with race that is both inherited by our ancestors, from our ancestors, and perpetuated by our actions and the way that we live our lives today. Numbers don't lie when you look at statistics of mass incarceration. Uh, representation in government, industry, and, and fashion, it's pretty clear uh, that there are just facets of society that show that white people benefit from a certain advantage. And, and that's what we're here to talk about is just what that advantage is. Um, in no way do we claim to be experts in this. Um, at times we might say things that, that are not intended to, but may inflict pain. Um, obviously that's not our intention, but the point of this is just to have a conversation, to educate each other's um, and to be open to feedback in this conversation. So with that, um, I'm going to start this off topic that I have to, to kind of kick things off is just the concept of why it's so difficult to begin with, why it's so difficult for white people to talk about white privilege. Um, and I think that the first thing that I want to pose to the group is a question of just how the concept of not seeing race has played into your life. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, obviously a difficult one to answer. Um, I think my case is a little strange um, because literally that's impacted me. Um, my mom's Korean, my dad is white. So even though I, I have a close proximity to whiteness, I'm not fully white. But when it comes to not seeing race, oftentimes I'm impacted when either people don't see it in the first place or do see it. So. There have been many examples when, or many different times that I've had where people make comments about Asians, about different stereotypes, or make jokes based on purely Asian race and Asian stereotypes. And they make it in front of me because they literally don't see my race. They, so that's one end of it where it's, it needs to be addressed and it isn't. And it, that results in me being exposed to these conversations that likely they didn't intend to direct towards me. And I would say the other thing is not seeing race. It can also mean that I can choose to not see my race. I can choose to not have to, to act in a certain way. If I'm white passing, I can choose to engage fluidly in, in different dynamics around different people because people don't necessarily see my race. So in a lot of ways that plays to my advantage. If I, if I am perceived to be whiter than I am, I receive the benefit of that aspect. Um, so I would say not seeing race has played differently in my life because it's been both something that should be acknowledged more and something that has just not been acknowledged enough. I would say in my life, um, the way that not seeing race most often presents itself is definitely with older members of my family. Um, they use it a lot as an, a reason not to dive into some of these really uncomfortable issues. You know, if you bring up, you know, racial disparity or injustice or like, oh, this doesn't impact me because I don't see race. Um, they think that that's somehow a good thing um, and that approaching it from that way levels the playing field for all people and it's been a difficult conversation to have with my family members because by ignoring it or putting that band-aid on it um they're not really diving deep and seeing what's really impacting people yeah i relate a lot to that kaylee i would say i feel like i was raised by older generations of my family to not see race and the intent behind that is seemingly, or at least in my life, it, it was seemingly positive of, of like, well, we don't see race, we're all the same. So we don't need to like talk about the differences because there are no differences kind of thing. But obviously that has presented itself in a way that we don't have conversations when conversations need to be had. 
And I think, again, tying back to like the, the idea of why it's so difficult to talk about this to begin with, if you don't agree on the reality of something, of, of the reality of race existing, then you're never going to be able to have like a productive conversation if you don't agree on the reality of, of, of the facts. And you can't really have a productive conversation around it. And well, you, I feel like, have an interesting experience of benefiting from people not seeing race. And I thought that was an interesting kind of perspective as well, that concept of like passing. Anything more to say on that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think that really gets into the idea of proximity to whiteness. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a matter of, yes, your race and your culture and your upbringing but it's also a matter of your appearance. And, and I think that's the inherently evil aspect of it is it's purely appearance-based. Um, white privilege doesn't, it doesn't apply to people because of the way they were born. So that's pretty sinister when you think about it because that's something you have zero control over and something in my case that people have gotten wrong. So it's not even grounded in anything other than what people perceive or, or view. And that's why also... I think many people feel like although they have white privilege, they don't have much or they have less white privilege or it becomes some sort of commodity um, based on, on how white you really are and what it not only looks like, but what it represents. I would say, Annabelle, and correct me if this is not your perception, but I think your experience kind of proves that race is there, right? So the fact that you're able to so easily go between two worlds proves that there are two worlds. You know, if there was no race, then this would be a non-issue for you, is my assumption. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I would agree. Another, I guess, part of your experience that brings up the the next part of this I wanted to talk about was your, again, this idea of like passing and that proximity to to whiteness. Um, All of that frames whiteness as a goal or as like a a normal or something to achieve for so kind of leading into at least one way you've experienced that but what are, are i guess other ways or can you explain or expand more on how this concept of whiteness being normalized has played in your life and in both of your lives and as a follow-up to that like what what impact does that concept of, of normalized whiteness have on our ability your ability to confront white privilege yeah so i would say to, to answer the first question how has it become normalized so i think that gets into like the benefit of white privilege which is in a lot of ways the ability to not have to talk about your race unless you choose to so you get to be a obli- um you get to be oblivious to certain issues because you're not clocked in certain situations. So it doesn't occur to you. Um, When people make jokes about you, it's about you. It's not about your race or your entire family or entire background that you grew up with and know closely. Um, If you do something successful, it's about you. You did that, you worked on it. It's not about your race in any way. So when you get to a place of white normal normalization, it's just a place of respecting someone for who they are. I guess, too, that's a big issue is it's respect um, and perceiving someone as what they are versus what they look like or what they seem to represent. So I guess, too, when I talk about identifying whiteness in my life um, and specifically white privilege, it's a matter of where have I benefited without realizing I was benefiting, first of all. And it's also how do I bring my race into it without, I think that, I mean, that's the bigger question is how do I bring my race into something without giving up privilege? Because nobody wants to give up privilege. Um, And it's not even just out of selfish desire. It's just, you know, how do you give up this view people have of you? So I guess addressing, so to answer the second question, addressing white privilege in my life looks like confronting myself on the areas where I've benefited because my race wasn't acknowledged. Um, and getting to have ownership over my race um, and figuring out that sort of avenue. Like, how do I, how do I represent my race strongly and how do I um, still be recognized for who I am and not just what I look like? In my case, uh, it's very hard for me to answer how whiteness has been normalized in my life because I feel like I've been in that to some sense the moment I was born. So to Annabelle's point, like, I have the privilege to be oblivious 
Um, so whiteness has just always been the standard and always been the norm and everything that I experience in my life is based off of that. So how does that impact my ability to confront it? Um, in my own personal life, it's been a lot of listening to other people who don't have white privilege, um, you know, coworkers, friends that I grew up with, um, listening to just stories um, in the media and just believing them. Um, I think the one only experience that I recall that didn't even happen necessarily like to me, but I was adjacent in it, that made me confront my own white privilege was the fact that um, I went to Las Vegas with one of my friends um, and he happens to be black and we were walking in to the hotel together and people stopped us multiple times and asked me, not him, if we were together, like going back upstairs and like checking in on me. And that was one of the first times that I really was like, this is like blatant, like that they're just had no concerns about me coming in. If this was my hotel, where, where was I going? Do I belong here? They only were asking about him. Um, and so the more I feel like I can just be open to other people's experiences and believing them, the more I can confront those in those moments and be like, this is not okay. Yeah, what's, what's interesting is that as I, to make an assumption of those people's intention is maybe it's, it's out of concern for your safety, but would they have come up to you and said that if, if that was a white man? And I think I would rather assume that they wouldn't than be like, oh, it's only because he's a man. It's still like, right. in my yeah. opinion, like I would rather listen to my friend and how he took that because mm -hmm. that's, I'm sure that's a very, and he told me it's a very familiar experience for him. And for me, the, the normalization of whiteness is very similar to that of been what always has been. And there has been no question to it. I, I think about how I view my upbringing and I've, caught myself so many times saying this, like what role diversity played in my life. And I would always say like, I grew up in a sheltered environment, even in a like diver as diverse a city as Houston. And, and I think that like sort of comparison of like, I say sheltered, but in the same sentence, like diverse and like, I, to me, I, I, again, I've said this before so many times, like I implicitly basically saying that like, the whiteness that I was surrounded in was like the ideal and it was like the shelteredness and, and I was safe. Uh, and like, I love the diversity of Houston, but like my upbringing was like separate from the diversity. Coming into ways that I, I feel like it, that like normalization, I mean, I, I think I'm, this is not unique to me, but just, I mean, you walk into a, this, any advertisement until I feel like relatively recently, like models in ads are like overwhelmingly white and, and just like products that are manufactured for mass like population are like catered towards in, in the advertising and then just kind of the messaging around the product is, is catered towards white people. I feel like the way that it's it's presented itself and like challenging or like how it is difficult for me to challenge is it kind of comes into this like herd mentality sort of thing of like if white is normal and white is what I am I feel like I'm socialized into basically, and I have this message of like, I, I shouldn't be challenging my herd. I shouldn't be challenging like my normalcy um, because I, then I'm, I'm basically like going against like what what I am. And I think that brings in other issues of how like racism manifests itself. But I think at its core is, is like ties back to like that herd sort of mentality. I think one interesting aspect of that is that what herd are we referring to? Because there isn't like one white race. Uh, white people come from all over the world and they come from many very unique European um, countries with very different cultures. And, you know, so I hear what you're saying about herd mentality, but it's also so interesting to me because what herd is it? You know, what what is the qualification to be part of white culture? It's just your skin. I mean, there's no, there's no one food. There's no one language. I mean, English would be the pre predominant language, but there's no, other than that, there's no key cultural aspect other than your skin. Yeah, and I think it's, that's the whole problem here is, is that we're like conflating the color of skin to, to be culture. And well, you had made a, a point earlier how, how white privilege has shown up for you sometimes is, is challenging you to give up that privilege to like own your race uh and 
and that brings me to, I think the last thing I wanted to talk about here was, um, or one of the last things is um, how, I think also what underlines again, back to the, the original topic here of why it's so difficult for to talk about white privilege is how capable, or I guess how ready are you to, regardless of how empathetic you can be to seeing like the misfortunes of somebody else, how ready are you to trade places with them? So yeah, I'm just curious, like thoughts on that and how that shows up for everyone. I think that's like an impossible question because I think the answer is 100%. I would be 100% ready to switch right now if I could jump into someone else's body and give them mine, like instantaneous. Absolutely. I'd want to experience that and, and I would give it up, I would say. But the fact of the matter is, is I can't. I, I can't physically appear different than I am. So to me, the next most important question is, you know, what do you do with your, your whiteness? If, if the fact of the matter is you're white and white has a privilege, then what? what? What can you do? And I think like there's many approaches to that. I think there's many ways to address that. But I think internally you have to, you have to start with the self-awareness and you have to start recognizing the areas where you, you, you even experience this privilege. So you have to start, I mean, we started the conversation talking about why it's so difficult even address that or when people don't even acknowledge it well that's the that's the first step is, is just acknowledgement and then from there like Kaylee said it's listening yeah but I would say strictly to answer the question a hundred percent I'd love to I mean as horrible as it could be or as different as it could be to me I'd a hundred percent want to experience the flip the flip side um, and give up my privilege but you know, what can you do if you can't? Yeah. Um, I guess in asking that, I, I think that's what underlines to me, like white privilege is if you are like any, in any, like any way that a white privilege is manifested in yourself in any way that you are unable to challenge it underlines, I, I think, um, a reluctance to trade places, regardless of, again, like any of the empathy and saying like, yeah, I would absolutely like want to, I'm not like discounting what you just said. Um, but I think to me, the way I interpret white privilege again is, is like every time that I am not challenging white privilege, every time, every time that I acknowledge that there is some aspect of my life that is benefited, that I'm benefiting from because of the color of my skin, and I don't challenge it, that I just accept it as that, and I, I, I let uh, kind of just let that go. I feel like to me, that's that's me telling myself that I'm comfortable like this, and I don't want to trade places. Because I, I, I would say the same as you. It's like, obviously, I, I, I want to, like, make others' lives easier. But if I'm being honest, like, the, in those moments where I'm not, I, I think that's me just, like, not challenging white privilege. It's, it's because I, I feel like I'm not able to kind of trade places. Well, I think, you know, talking in, uh, about trading places or holding on to white privilege and on the topic of acknowledging white privilege, um, I actually read this article, which is a, it's a pretty well-known article in the field of white privilege, and it's often used to teach the concepts in just a straightforward manner. Um, and it's called The Invisible Knapsack, um, and it's a piece by Peggy McIntyre, uh, who was a professor at many different colleges, and she's an activist, and she generally focuses on feminist issues and um, gender-related studies, um, but while she was doing a lot of research on male privilege and, and why we don't necessarily always address male privilege, she started to see a lot of parallels between male privilege and white privilege. So what she did is, in this article, um, unpacking the invisible knapsack, she wrote down just ways that she's experienced white privilege um, on a daily basis that only come about because of her race. Um, so I just wanted to read just a couple examples to kind of set the tone of, of her writing and, and get you maybe thinking about experiences you guys have had with white privilege. Um, but here are some of what she wrote um, and it's a long list and I encourage anyone to read this if they're interested. So, she says, I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. 
When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made it what it is. If I want to, I can be pretty sure of finding a publisher for this piece on white privilege. I can be pretty sure of having my voice heard in a group in which I am the only member of my race. Whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. I can talk with my mouth full and not have people put this down to my color. Um, I can speak in public to a powerful male group without putting my race on trial. And, I, and last, I think this one really resonates, but I'm never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. So, you know, given some of those thoughts, um, just first of all, did you guys have anything that really stood out to you or did that remind you of times where your white privilege has been either blatant in a situation or a clear difference from someone that would be non-white? In my case, when I was reading that list, it really reminded me of all little events in my life where I feel like that was probably white privilege. Um, even the first one that you read about like the neighborhood being pleasant to you, I was like, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. When I move somewhere, I don't even think twice about where I'm moving or who lives in the neighborhood that I live in. And I just have this safe assumption that like I can move wherever I want and feel totally comfortable, um, which is definitely a privilege. And I think another one that it really reminded me of is, you know, I hate to say it, but times I've gotten like, pulled over for speeding or what it might be. Like I've had cops just be like, okay, like you're probably fine. Like, go ahead. You know, I'll let you off with a warning. And there's probably many instances where like someone else of a different color who had the same exact job happen that wouldn't have been let off as easily as I had. Um, and I definitely feel like that list, even as simple as some of them are, just like so true because that's how we can be so oblivious is that there are simple everyday things that we take for granted. Yeah. Um, I think the, the freedom of movement that you said that really resonates and that's not just like moving to a different city or different part of a town, but like when I was studying abroad, like I, I had no concern of where I was traveling. I had no concern of what program I could go to and, and like what country I, I went to. And so uh, this conversation is not just about like white privilege in America. It's, it's a, I think there's there's white privilege that exists everywhere. Um, I think the other one that, that really stood out to me was like the representation piece around like if you can read the history books. Um, history books or like watching movies, anything like my, my skin color is represented everywhere. And uh, I think that idea of like, you can only become what you see resident like stands out a lot to me. There is like, I, I saw somebody that looked like me in every aspect of society pretty much. Um, and, and so I, I don't feel like I, not to say I haven't limited myself on like what I could become or like thought of what I could do, but like my, my race was never a part of, of like what I could become or like what I felt like I, I could do. I feel like the thing that also brings up for me, what you were just saying, Ben, is like when I go to somewhere new, um, like, like say I started a new job or I'm in a new school or I have a new class, like you usually like flock to the people that look like you or remind you of yourself. So like, I think that's another piece of privilege that we don't acknowledge very often is like even on metric theory, right? Like I feel totally comfortable walking into the room, right? Because I know there's people like me and I can expect that. Like, I don't like think like, oh, will I be the only person of color here? And I think that that's something that we constantly, again, take for granted um, is that we can like just move and feel comfortable wherever we go. Um, so that's what you kind of reminded me of. Yeah, I think to that point, you know, how many classes have you ever had just like throughout your ent entire education experience where you were the only person that looked like you? So whether you were the only female or Ben, if you're the only man or, you know, you were the only one of that race or appearance or you were the only one wearing glasses even. I mean, think of any situation where you were the only one. And I, I bet it was one time or never. 
you know, and that, but then for someone that's non-white, that's almost always the, the case. So it, it's like a complete flip from what you're saying, Kaylee. It's, it's completely the opposite. Unless I intentionally sought that out, it's been never. And I think that stands out too is like the default is, is that I am represented. Um, if I want to get myself, you know, out, out of my like comfort zone or out of being the majority, um, I can seek that out, but it's not, it's not presented to me unless I go for it. Definitely. Which is, yeah, completely the opposite. Um, one other interesting point the article talks about is something called the myth of meritocracy, um, which is the idea of meritocracy is the American dream. So it's like, so you make it, if you work hard enough, you're going to be rich and you're going to have everything you, that you want handed to you. You just have to work really hard. Um, and it's the rags to riches story. But this article says that's a myth. It says that there are some groups of people that will work very hard in their life, but they'll never reach the same levels as other people. Um, and that we are all not given equal grounds to start with. Um, and some of us have more obstacles than others. Um, so I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Uh, do, you, do you guys agree with that? Have you experienced that? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? I loved that point of the article because often that's the argument I get from my family and older generations is like there is no disparity because if anyone works hard enough they can get wherever they want but I I do feel like that's a myth because you know you have foundations that are laid that allow you to have an easier way up or not so all the way down to uh, elementary and pre-k um, when I was living in New York City, one big, big movement was to get pre-K for all because there's been so many studies that prove that if you have a child in pre-K, they're going to be more successful in elementary school. If they're more successful, their middle school will be easier, high school will be easier, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the big push was also that a lot of minority children don't have the funding because usually pre-K costs money um, to send them to that. And so they're already starting at a disadvantage compared to their white counterparts if they do go to pre-K. And so this initiative was to make it, you know, funded by the government so everyone had access to it. And I think that's a really great example of how, you know, it's it's not just about working hard. There might be some people that slip through there, right? You know, that do extremely well, but why is that the unique case and not the norm? Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, to a degree, you have to put in a certain amount of effort to, to get somewhere. Like, things are not just entirely handed to you. Um, but that idea that everybody has, like, equal opportunity and it's purely just a matter of, of work effort, I think, is entirely flawed. And I think that everyone that is delivered by somebody that is in a position of power or that is, a, is in the position of the majority, or in this case, if a white person says this, I think that is, is just sort of a, a fundamental expression of white privilege. Um, I think at the end of the day, as much as we can talk about this now, like I, I, I don't presume that I will ever fully understand the weight of oppression that non-white persons, that non, that women or non-male uh, identifying persons uh, experience because I myself have not experienced that. And so if you've never experienced that oppression, even as subtle as it might be or as overt as it might be, I don't think you can ever really like appreciate the impact that, that has. And so that that idea of like, oh, if you just work hard, like you'll you'll get it is is so flawed because especially if that comes from somebody that is a white male, like you can't say that because you don't know. No matter how much you you try to understand, you you won't know. Yeah, Ben, I think it's interesting that you you call it oppression or use the term oppressive because I think I've heard, you know, probably half the times when I'm talking about white privilege, people describe it as something you have as an advantage and that the other person doesn't have. 
but very rarely or, or just less often do I hear it as something you have because the other person doesn't have it. So not only are you don't not only do you have the head start, but you also are pushing them down to get that head start. So I think that's interesting that piece um, calling it oppression because I think that's a different understanding of it than simply I can't help it. I have this head start. It's it's more of an active or more violent context. Yeah, I, I mean, white men in America are not we're not inherently granted the right to vote. White women were not inherently granted the right to vote over black women. Like it, the only reason that white men had that power is because they gave it to themselves. And the only reason that white women got the power to vote in 1920 was because white men gave it to them. Uh, I, I absolutely think it's, it's, in some ways, I think like white privilege is too soft of a term to talk about it sometimes because it, if it's just like privilege kind of seems like it's just this like fact of nature. Like, no, it's, it's, it's only a privilege because you have it and somebody else doesn't and you only have like somebody else doesn't have it because the people with privilege are not giving it to those that that don't have it that's a great point one of the things annabelle that you had mentioned uh in when we were discussing this whole topic was do you think white privilege can ever be leveraged to help others or is it something that has to be given up and i think to what Ben was just saying, it has to be given up. Like the people in power have to choose to give some of that power away. And I think that's what makes it so hard, right? Is because if you're benefiting from it, you're, you can ignore it, then you're not making active decisions to disperse that power equally among people. Um, and of course, you know, there's bigger change that can happen at a national level or a state level or whatever it might be in the government. Um, but there's also stuff that you can do like on your own individually, um, you know, speaking up for someone else, if you see something happen, you know, voting is a huge one, all of that. So I think in my perspective, it is something that you can leverage to give away because to Ben's point, white men gave white women the privilege to vote. If there wasn't a white man in that group speaking up for women and you know, advocating for them, then this change would have never happened. Um, so I do feel like that that's something that you can use your white privilege for is, is for for change and distribution, distribution of that power. Yeah, and I, I think the, the charge there is recognizing the privilege you have, like you are safe in doing that. It's uncomfortable to talk about white privilege. It's, it's uncomfortable to uh, you know, address how racism shows up in your life or in your family members' lives or in in the workplace and in, in every aspect of your life. It's uncomfortable to, but if you are coming from a place of, of having white privilege, it's safe for you to challenge that. And I think that's where absolutely like white privilege can be used or can be used for good, I guess, because if you have that safety of that you know you are safe in, in challenging that, then use that to your advantage by challenging it. In preparing for this conversation, one thing that just kept coming up for me personally in my life is just the inaction and privilege, which we've all kind of been alluding to, is there was this really funny uh, Michelle Wolf stand-up, if you've ever listened to her, um, and there's this one line she says where basically she's like, oh, you know, racial injustice, that's not my fault. I didn't do anything. And she's like, yeah, that's the point. Like you didn't do anything and that in and of itself is privilege. And I think so often because we don't say a bad word or we're not choosing actively not to invite someone because of their race or whatever it might be that we think we're not racist, but you can be participating in the structure that racism is by solely being in without action. So I was curious for you two, um, if you could ever think of a time you've experienced or witnessed privilege and not spoken up about it and why that was. I mean, I think just how difficult that question is speaks to how often I should be considering it. Um, I think it's hard to answer because 
I feel like I've probably witnessed many instances of white privilege and just deemed it the norm. Like that's just how things go or, you know, that's just, that's just what it is. It's none of my business or, you know, whatever the case may be. I just think of like, from a non-personal level, I think of people that participated in anti-mask rallies recently, right? And they, and there were protests where people showed up with guns and um, were yelling in officers' faces um, and acting in a lot much more rambunctious manner um, than would be maybe considered peaceful. And then you have people that protested the Black Lives Matter movement and did not show up with guns, did not show up um, apparently violent, and and the the response is different. So I I would say like when you're seeing something like that on mass media and that's become the norm, you become more numb to the idea of white privilege. It's just more of an idea of the way the world works or an understanding of just the function of, of some of these groups um, and power. So I think there've been many instances where I've seen white privilege occur and I haven't said anything because I feel no normalized to it. I don't feel, you know, always necessarily particularly surprised or shocked or moved beyond tired of the situation. Growing up as a kid all the way to like even times in my very recent life, I, I don't challenge it. And it just goes back to that like uncomfortableness. It's like, oh, like I, I could say something, I recognize this, but like I'm not going to because it's, I, I weigh the, the like pros and cons on a very personal level. Of, of like, oh, I could say that, but like, what does that mean for like this relationship? And like, what does that mean for me? And I don't know if that's a, an answer to your question that you were looking for, but but yes, <laughs> I, I feel like it's a very common thing. It's not challenging it. And since both of you have you know mentioned that it's very rare for you if you ever um, challenged an instance where you saw white privilege or just privilege in general, um, what aspect of this work? feels most uncomfortable for you? To me, I think it's difficult to give up privilege because privilege is advantage. Privilege is a good thing for the people that have it um, and a bad thing for the people that, a really bad thing for the people that don't have it. And so it's easier to think about how great things are when you're privileged and it's easier to live in your little bubble and never really consider the flip side of it um, and to continue to benefit from the privilege. If someone gave you $100 a day, wouldn't you take it? And, and then what if you found out someone was stealing that hundred dollars from someone that had no money to give it to you? You know, it's, it changes, but it doesn't make that hundred dollars less nice to have, or it doesn't make it um, easier to give up, even understanding the context. So I think it, it's just a matter of selflessness in a way, because and in, in I think too, you feel really entitled to privilege. I think it becomes so ingrained in what's normal that you think it's the baseline. You think that's the standard and you think the solution is other people just, you know, back to meritocracy, other people just need to work harder or other people, you know, can work to fix it and everyone will get to my level. But if the reality is you have to give something up to get to the same level, that, that story is way different. That makes it way harder. Um, so I, I think it just goes back down to, it's a nice thing. Privilege is a nice thing for people to have it. That's the truth. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I think, you know, just to give an example um, and how I was thinking about this was, you know, I don't know if you remember or not, but 10 years ago, plus years ago, saying that's okay was like a really, really common thing to do. Um, and I had to be corrected, even myself um, in middle school and high school, to not use that phrase as much because of how hurtful it can be. And so, like now, um, if I ever hear someone say that, which is luckily now very, very rare, you know, I have no issues with telling someone that that's not okay and explaining why, even so gently. But until it was done to me in a very gentle, nice manner, um, like, I would have kept saying it forever and like knowing that 
I didn't, I had to learn the consequences of my words, right? Like someone had to point out how oblivious I was being and how insensitive I was being. So I guess with that example in mind, does that change any of your guys' answers? Like, would you speak up if you experience something similar to that? And if not, why is that? Um, what, what needs to happen in order for you to feel comfortable enough to speak up? I think what comes up for me in terms of like why I don't say anything, especially in if there's somebody that I have like a personal relationship with. Um, I think I've gotten a lot better at this at lately, but if there's somebody I have a personal relationship with and there's something that they say or that they do that I, I think is either like overtly racist or is, is an expression of like white privilege. Um, and there's something that I feel like should be said that I choose not to say, or that I may have chosen not to say. The reason that I didn't would, it comes from uh, evaluating, again, like I said, that kind of evaluating the pros and cons of, of saying something. And, um, I think at least in the past, I've like prioritized uh, the impact that it has on like my relationship with that individual versus like the impact that it has on somebody else. Or I, I, if, if there's like a, you know, a specific person or if it's just like, oh, like that's probably some, like if that's an idea that you have, like I'd be concerned that you're going around walking through your daily life believing that. Like if I didn't challenge that, it's because I was like, I, pros and cons I'm, I'm kind of concerned that if I said something it would damage the relationship because ultimately like that belief that you have that thing that you said isn't directly impacting me so it's extremely selfish is, is what I'm getting at here is that if if what you believe or what you say doesn't directly impact me and it's not directly impacting my life my decision to say something is either it, it, it comes down to like do I prioritize the relationship I have with you or do I prioritize like the, the greater good and kind of the larger cause? And I think in the past I was always prioritizing more of like that individual relationship and I would kind of downplay like the need to say something because kind of, you know, maybe just like a one time you said that or something like that. Um, and, and it's just, it's sitting in comfort. It's, it's that it's comfortable to not say something because it's uncomfortable to kind of put that divide in the relationship that you have with somebody. Um, so I don't think that entirely answered what you just asked, but, um, I, I think it's for me, I, I guess what, what has gotten me to a point where I am more comfortable saying something is a reprioritization in my life that that individual relationship I have is not, is not the ultimate like good in my life. And also that walking around um, not wanting to upset somebody for like their racist or for their like white privilege charged ideas um, or the kind of the way that they live their life, not saying something is, is I think at this point, like more damaging than saying something. Whereas before like saying something was like, oh, I'm going to damage that relationship between me and that person. Not saying something is I'm, damaging a growth opportunity that I feel like I could inspire. So it's, it's kind of reframing that sort of perspective and priority. I think for me too, an area that's really difficult when it comes to speaking up about white privilege is it's so subtle many times. Um, it goes back to what we were saying about it being just normalized. Um, it's not like someone says, like, I'm using my white privilege card or, you know, like I get to go in front, I get to go in front or officer, let me off because I, it's my white privilege. You know, it's not so blatant and in your face. And in many ways, racism is easier to identify because a lot of times it's overt and it's easy to, to pick up on. So if the question were about, you know, speaking up against someone using a racial slur, I, I of course would jump in. Of course, no issue saying anything. But when it's a, it's a matter of, something so subtle, um, a favorable treatment. I mean, what does that look like? How do you identify that? And how do you identify it when it's occurring to someone else? Um, that's difficult, that's, that's challenging. So I think to get better at that, what needs to change is, is self-awareness 
education, listening to people, like you said, Kaylee, when they say it, um, when they're giving you examples of how they've witnessed it, um, you know, listening to our non-white brothers and sisters, you have to just be alert. You have to be actively um, looking for instances of white privilege being used or um, damaging people in order to do anything about it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, the thing I have been committed to, um, especially since the Black Lives Matter movement started after George Floyd was killed, is like personally just not letting anything slide. Like even if I know that the person's intention wasn't to be privileged or, you know, be racist, like saying something and making sure that it doesn't get swept underneath the rug. I found myself sometimes like frozen in the moment, like, wow, I'm about to be considered, you know, <laughs> so many different words that are called dramatic or called sensitive or called so many other things. Um, but I've decided to like make it a point that that defense point uncomfortableness is worth it. And I would rather be mistaken about what they were saying and be corrected than just like walk past it or whatever it might be. So I definitely feel like I encourage people to to do that more frequently um, and ask more questions uh, and not just take it as it is. So I think, you know, we've talked about a lot of different topics and how white privilege impacts our lives and how it goes unseen and why we don't want to talk about it. But, you know, to my point and taking this forward after this podcast, you know, there should be some kind of action item um, and something that we all commit to doing to break down our own white privilege. Um, so my question to the group is, you know, what is one step each of us can commit to doing after this podcast to confront white privilege? I think a good exercise to do would just be to go through the invisible knapsack um, list of privileges that you contain. So just sit down and write out everything you can think of that would be considered white privilege that you experience on a daily basis or a regular basis. I think that's a good exercise that you can do. And I think as we've talked about, I think listening to other people more and educating yourself on your own time and being aware matters. I think understanding too what businesses you're supporting. Um, you know, for example, there's a lot of cultural appropriation that happens where white people benefit from selling the culture of non-white people. So, you know, something like even burning sage could be really damaging to um, communities and you just don't know about it. Um, and you just don't know about the, the religious implications or the way communities have fought for something for so long, or, you know, any other number of, of white men or women creating businesses that sell something that isn't of their culture all of these things you can um, work to avoid through education um, and, and just be actively, like you were saying, Kaylee, actively against any instance of, of letting anything fly. So you have to be beyond proactive or even to the point where you might even make a mistake or you might even be, you know, too excessive in your um, defense against white privilege, I guess. Two things come up for me. One is... I, I feel personally, um, I've had a very safe environment in which to explore my white privilege these last few months. And yeah, I, it, I think it's been a very safe environment to explore that because of COVID, only around the people that I trust. Uh, and I'm able to kind of engage in those conversations where I know there is trust built and where I feel like we can kind of slip our way through and, and that like that, that worry of kind of offending um, is lessened. And so I don't know how this, this translates right now, but ultimately like the test for me is like, can I have the conversations I've been having? Can I stand up in the way that I have been standing when I don't have that safety blanket? Now, again, I back to white privilege, like ultimately as a white male, I, I feel like I have a, an insane amount of safety and having these conversations, but I currently have the emotional safety of knowing that I can have that conversation and that I can stand up for these things 
because that relationship is, is intact. But like, can I do the same where I don't have that trust built? Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a test for me that I'd like to commit to is, is just, again, kind of holding up that conversation outside of that, that safe relationship. The other um, is just having awareness around the resources that I have. Um, I've had, you know, just writing a check uh, is is a good thing, but it only goes so far. Ultimately, like I, I would always like advocate for like actual personal advocacy and, and like having these conversations and kind of donating resources other other than your money. Um, but I also recognize that like I have a financial privilege that I can share. Um, and I think this, this is not just like white privilege, this is male privilege as well. Um, I have benefited in the society given my gender and given my, my race. Um, and I could just be like donating more money to organizations that are, so yeah, just, just kind of being a little bit more aware of the resources that I have and being more willing to separate from some of those. We've kind of all alluded to my point throughout the podcast um, on what I really want to work on, but I think it all goes back to that self. Um, you know, Annabelle, you said this a lot too. You know, if you don't identify where you're privileged, then you can't actually change it. So I think that, you know, I, to be honest, have done a great job calling out my family, but I haven't necessarily called out myself um, in the ways that I have reaped benefits from this privilege. So I think that that's something I definitely want to explore a bit more after this is just like, what ex act actually am I benefiting from? Um, when does this happen? And I'm not even noticing it. And just to, like become more self-aware, I think will be a huge one for me. Um, because, you know, you can always tell someone else what to do, but it's harder to like change yourself, I believe. So I really want to start there. I think we've covered some good topics today and have a good idea about where to go from here. Well, thanks everyone. Thank you guys.